to Jerusalem to conquer. And instead, Jesus says, we are entering into Jerusalem to be rejected. When Jesus finally arrives into Jerusalem, he starts uttering critiques and curses on the city. He curses the temple and he says, he drives out the money changers and he says, this is going to be left to you desolate and abandoned. If you look at the end of chapter 23, he's weeping as he looks at Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that I had gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. He says, I wish that you had answered me, but instead your house is left to you desolate. What he talks about over and over is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. This is Jesus' last time to leave the temple. He walks out, and this, in the story of God, is the final moment where God's presence was in the temple. From here on, the glory of the Lord has stepped away from the building. He steps away, and he's walking away when his disciples call up his attention to its building. This is an incredibly important verse for understanding the context of where we're going in Matthew 24. What is the conversation about in verse 1? It's about the temple. Here's a little replica model of the city of Jerusalem back in the time of Jesus. It's incredible. Uh, scholars, they say that basically this is the most magnificent building in the ancient world at the time. Herod has been working on this for decades. As the people are going into Jerusalem, this is about 30 AD, it's been under construction for 30 years, and it will be under construction for the next 30 years. It's just magnificent. There, there are stones here that are the size of large vehicles that they're just like putting into place. All right, so what, what the whole context is they are staring at the temple, and they're saying, look, and it's, it's awesome. In Mark's version, Mark and Luke both have versions of the same chapter. They say it's, it's almost like the, the, the kids and the grandmother in the, the fairy tale. They say, my, what big buildings you have. <laughs> it's like, what big teeth you have. What big buildings you have. They're just admiring it. And look at what Jesus says. Do you see all these things? All these things. As they look up at the temple and they say, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's magnificent, but Jesus has left the building. So, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. The Mount of Olives in prophecy in Zechariah 14, it's the place where the judgment of God is going to come from. In the book of Ezekiel, the Mount of Olives, you remember the glory chariot of the Lord, like the presence of the Lord leaves the temple in the book of Ezekiel. And just before it leaves, it stops at the Mount of Olives. Jesus is doing the same thing. The glory of the Lord has left the temple, and it stops at the Mount of Olives. He looks up, and they came to him, and they said, When will this happen? When will what happen? When will not one stone here be left on another? Everyone be thrown down. And the second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, there's a lot of different ways to read Matthew 24. I would call one of my New Testament professors, a guy named Alan Black over at Highland Church in Harvard School of Theology. And I said, Dr. Black, I have a problem. 
I said, like, my favorite commentator says this. My favorite commentary says this, and you say this. <laughs> it's like, what do I do? Because nobody seems to agree on how to read this. So can I just ask for a little grace? I'm going to give you my reading today, and you need to know there are smarter people than me who disagree, and they read it a different way. But perhaps I can be persuasive. I think they're asking two questions. The first question is, when will the temple fall? And the second question is, what will be the sign when the temple falls? Now, some of the end of the sentence, what will be the sign of your coming or the end of the age? Some of, to many people, it sounds like we're talking about the end of the world. That's, I'm sympathetic to that view, except that the whole conversation is happening in the context of looking at the temple saying, it's going to be destroyed. And then in verse 34, Jesus saying, all these things are going to happen within a generation. But there's also other evidence. If you just look at Mark's version, Mark shows there's two questions here. Tell us, when will these things happen? Question one, the fall of Jerusalem. And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Luke says the same thing. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? There are two questions that we're asking in Matthew chapter 24. The, the first question is, when will the temple fall? And the second question is, you see, what will be the sign that it's about to fall? I think everything that we're going to look at in Matthew 24 is an answer to one of these two questions. So let's see what Jesus says. When Jesus describes the fall of Jerusalem, I think a really good image um, for thinking of this is the image of a mountain range. Many of you may be wondering, why all this talk of the fall of Jerusalem? Jerusalem? Really? What does that have to do with us today? Now, set aside the war in Gaza that's currently going on for a moment. And just take a look at this. Uh, this, this past fall, my family took a trip to Colorado. Part of our stock was Colorado Springs, and we stayed at this little place called Cheyenne Mountain. Cheyenne Mountain is where Norad is. There's like this building that's built into the side of the mountain. It's also where Pikes Peak is. And so there are some places that you can be at in Colorado Springs where it's like, wow, that, that looks magnificent. You can see this lush paradise at one of these stops that we went to. But sometimes it's really hard to tell which peak is closer or which peak you're actually talking about whenever you're looking at it. If you wanted to take a hike, to say this first stop where you see the big rock, and then you might think, well, that next mountain is just right behind it. And then that really high mountain is just behind it. And there's this, there's this thing that happens with mountain ranges and that they're a little deceptive. It's hard to tell which one is and where it is. They, at some point, they all just start kind of piling on top of each other. If you wanted to go to the highest peak that you see there, it's not just a short hike away, even though it looks like you could get there. It's about an hour drive where you could take the train that would take a couple of hours to get up the mountain. I think something similar is happening in Matthew 24 with the description of the fall of Jerusalem. He's showing us one of the mountain peaks of the judgment of what it will look like when Jesus returns. And as I've heard it said, God writes history in line where it, it looks and sounds similar where one day of the Lord is actually reminiscent of the next day of the Lord, and where the destruction of Jerusalem may have been fulfilled in its own generation, 
is pointing to a day when the Lord will actually come and it's going to rhyme. It's going to have a lot of the same echoes that when we're experiencing the day of the Lord, you'll think, I have read this before. Even though, yes, it was fulfilled in its own time, there's still the far off peak in the same mountain range that's still to be held. So Jesus answers their question, when will the temple fall? And he says, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I'm the Messiah, and they'll deceive many. Jesus says, watch out. At the end of this section, he'll say, keep watch. If you had kept watch, he says, you have to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming in at a day and an hour that you don't know when it is. Get ready. And so, although I'm talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, all of this is meant to be an echo on the mountain range of the coming of Jesus. So he says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. The end here being the end of Jerusalem, the end of the age, the end of the old covenant, and the ushering in of the new. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. These, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, some of you, it's too fresh. I see Mama wandering around there with baby Mason. It's the beginning of birth pains, which means there's a whole lot more to come. And it means that life is about to break through. So Jesus says, this is just life. He says, don't get lost in the wars and the earthquakes and the famines. This is just a thing called history and humanity. These are just the beginning. Then, he says, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many. He says, in, in Luke's version, you see that this is basically his forecasting of what will happen during the book of Acts. It, as the church expands, and as they're rejected in city after city, many people will turn away. And he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now some of you are thinking, well, that sure sounds like the whole gospel needs to be heard in the whole world. But consider this. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing. In Romans 10, 14, Paul says, how then can they call on the one whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? He says in verse 18, but I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. Paul says that his work is done. He says, I can move on to Spain because I've already sent the gospel to the nations. As you read the book of Acts, you see that the gospel does go to Ethiopia, which at that time was described as the ends of the earth. And the gospel ends in the, the city of Rome as they're awaiting the verdict from what will happen with Paul and Caesar. Paul says in Romans 16, 26, that all nations believe and obey him. 
So, R.T. Franks, he says, unless one insists on a woodenly literal meaning for the phrase, the good news of God's kingdom was indeed being proclaimed all over the world, he says, this happened before the temple was destroyed. Paul says, or Matthew says, they was preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Remember, when he says the end, we're talking about the end of the old order, many scholars say, not the end of the world. The end of what's called the present evil age. The end of the age, as it says in verse 3. So, N.T. Wright, he says, within the mainline Jewish writings of this period, covering a wide range of styles and genres and political persuasions and theological perspectives, there's virtually no evidence that Jews were ex expecting the end of the space-time universe. There is abundant evidence that they knew a good metaphor when they saw one, and they used cosmic imagery to bring out the full theological significance of cataclysmic socio-political events. He says, this is all meant to describe the fall of Jerusalem. What did they think was going to happen? They thought that the present world would come to an end. The world order in which pagans held power. So when will this happen? He says, not now, not now, not now. And it's a little ironic for many people who are looking for signs today. This is mostly an anti-science sermon. He says, when will it happen? He says, not now. Those are just the beginnings of the birth pains. So, verse 15, when you see in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. I was like, what? What just happened? Let the reader understand. So, do you understand? Some of you might. It seems to be a cue for Matthew to a public reader that more interpretation is needed from the prophet Daniel. He's saying you can't understand this section unless you see Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation. In the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, this phrase, the abomination of desolation, is used. And it seems to be fulfilled by a guy named Antiochus IV. Antiochus was a wicked pagan leader who marched on the temple in Jerusalem, set up a statue of himself to be worshipped, and then altered pigs, an unclean animal, on the altar in the holy place. Matthew, Jesus here in Matthew, seems to be saying that something similar will happen again. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, some people think this is talking about the end of the world, but here's the thing. If you try to run to the mountains at the end of the world, you're going to need to run farther than that. <laughs> okay? He says, when you see this happening, get out of town. Flee, get out. When you see what happens, Jesus doesn't spell out exactly what he means. But in about 10 years, uh, the emperor Gaius, he tries to build a statue of himself. He commissions it to be placed in the holy place in the temple. Unfortunately for Gaius, he was assassinated before he was able to go through with this. And so he does not fulfill the prophecy. A few years later, though, the Roman centurions would march on the city of Jerusalem. And they would, with their standards held high, march into the temple, and they would offer pagan sacrifices in the holy place. 
Jesus is warning beforehand, when you see this happening, it's time to leave. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let one in the field, no, no one in the field go back to get their cloak. You see, he's saying, you've got to get out now. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. If I was speaking hypothetically to any pregnant mamas who were worried about being pregnant when the end times come, know that Jesus is describing a very historical season when the Roman legionnaires would surround the city of Jerusalem and they would besiege it for about five months. This season was an awful, devastating, unlike anything the world had seen before, he says, or never to be equaled again. Now, that phrase, for what it's worth, is used about 12 times in the Old Testament, which itself says, even if it's true and never to be equaled before or after, when you use it 12 times to describe 12 different things, it seems to be just a turn of phrase of saying something really significant. It's just praying that your, your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Because you need to move quickly to get out of Jerusalem when the Romans come. You do not want to be caught in the siege. In the days of the siege, there was no food, there was no access to water. Many would turn to their neighbor. Cannibalism took over in the city. Many parents even consumed their own children. It was an awful place to be. And he says, you don't have to be there. I'm telling you in advance when to get out. So, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Even in the book of Acts, we see that new messiahs and false prophets arise. Thutis is one. Simon Barkakba is another. There were just false messiahs after false messiahs claiming in miraculous powers to be the one to deliver from the Roman legionnaires. Jesus is saying, don't listen to them. You'll know it when I show up. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Let me tell you a gross story. After Thanksgiving, my dad took the turkey that we had, and he took it out to his land, and he put a game camera. Game camera is just a motion sensor camera kind of out in the woods. And he just put whatever was left of the turkey, right, that everybody seemed to have eaten at Thanksgiving. And as the camera was taking pictures, buzzard after buzzard after buzzard came to this little turkey. And by the end, 29 buzzards came and were consuming one small leftover bird. Where the carcass is, the vultures will gather. He says, you're going to know. You'll know it by the death that's there. Many commentators, they say this word vultures is also the word for eagles. And it's possible, perhaps likely, many argue, that the eagles that would have been on the standards carried by those Roman soldiers would be these agents of death. 
So, immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now some of you are seeing the stars and moon and sun language and you're thinking this. See, I told you this was the end of the world. This has to be. No more sun, no more moon, no more stars. This is cosmic. You're saying this is about the fall of Jerusalem. He's saying it's something else. Now, I'm sympathetic to that, except that I've read my prophets. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13 says, The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Do you see the echoes of Isaiah? But here's the thing. Isaiah is describing the fall of Babylon as he makes it clear. He says, The Medes will come, and they will destroy the Babylonians. Is he talking about the end of the world? No, he's talking about the end of the city of Babylon. It's not just Isaiah 13. Take a look at Isaiah 34. The stars of the heaven, the sky will be rolled up. The starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine. What is this talking about? The end of the world? No, it's about the fall of Eden, one of Israel's sworn enemies and one of their neighbors. How about Ezekiel 32? When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. To describe the fall of Egypt. How about Amos 8? I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's about the fall of Israel. And then how about one more? Joel 2. Before then the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars no longer shine. What's it talking about? Is it talking about the end of the world? By this point you should know. No, it's talking about the fall of a city. But in this case, it's the fall of Jerusalem. It's interesting that in the city of Jerusalem, and just a few weeks after the events we're reading in Matthew 24, the Apostle Peter can stand up and say, Joel 2 is being fulfilled in your hearing. So, one scholar, R.T. France, he says, The language about cosmic collapse, then, is used by the Old Testament prophets to symbolize God's acts of judgment within history. It's within history that these cosmic events are happening. So yes, sun is darkening, the moon is falling, the stars are falling, but he's saying that that's what's happening to the powers. The political powers are being personified in these heavenly bodies. He says he's going to remove these proud and puffed up kings and the powers behind them, and he's going to replace them. And now, just as he did to Babylon and to Egypt and to all these other wicked, corrupt governments, so he will do for the high priest and for the king of Judea and for his own people. You have become Babylon. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Do you remember there are two questions that we're asking? When will this happen? What will be the sign that it's happening? He says, this is the sign. That all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The sign. The sign of the Son of Man. Just as this text may also seem to suggest, oh, this has to be the end of the world. See, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven. 
But once again, he's just drawing on Old Testament prophecy. Take a look at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, and he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So notice there's something really important about this. Is the Son of Man coming to earth, or is the Son of Man coming to God in heaven? This is where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. Not on earth, but in the presence of God in heaven. And it's where the Son of Man is given authority and glory and sovereign power and all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, R.T. France says, the time of the temple's destruction, he says, when the temple falls, it will also be the time when it will become clear that the Son of Man, rejected by the leaders of his people, has been vindicated. He's been enthroned at the right hand of God. And that he who is now, and that it is he who is now to exercise the universal kingship which is his destiny. He says the imagery of Daniel's vision requires that he's not coming to earth, but he's coming to God in heaven where he's going to receive his universal dominion declared in this text. So Jesus is answering the symbolic language. How will we know that the Son of Man is truly reigning at the right hand of God? And he says, you will know it when you see me visit Jerusalem. The evidence that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The evidence, he says, is in history. The vindication of the exalted Son of Man whenever he dispossesses Jerusalem of its wicked tents. So, he will gather his elect from the four winds and one from one end of the heavens to the other. Which means that he's calling them back to himself. This is Jeremy 30. This is Isaiah 27. This is the trumpet sound of Jubilee. That God is doing a new thing. And what is he doing? He's calling in all nations. No longer calling them to the temple. He's calling them to himself. He's saying, I am here from all nations. I will gather you. And this is what we call the church. In the New Testament, this is the language of God's oikos. That he's going to set up his household. That the spirit of God is building a new kind of temple. And he's building it through people. Not through a building in Jerusalem, but he's gathering his elect from all over the world through the proclamation of the gospel. And so he says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. He says, don't wait. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it's near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Is he talking about the end of the world? Now, many scholars, particularly progressive scholars who don't actually believe that Jesus is who he said he was, they say, look, Jesus is just a false prophet. He said that he was coming back within a generation, and he didn't do it. 
And then the church had to sort of invent all these theories about why, and they had to start explaining away the very words of Jesus. But this isn't my reading of this passage whatsoever. Jesus called his shot, and he nailed it. And he's saying that this will not happen until this generation passes away. So AD 30, Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives. He looks up at the temple and he says, within a generation, this is going to happen. In scripture, what would you say is like a, a good estimate for what a generation is? It's 40 years. If you have an unfaithful generation, you need to send them out to the wilderness for 40 years. 30 AD, he's looking at the temple and he's predicting this, saying this is going to happen within a generation. And in AD 70, 40 years to the year, all of this happens. And his prophecy is fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth? Remember the cosmic language of the folding up of the scroll of heaven, of the darkening of the, the stars of heaven. This is just a way of talking about the fall of kingdoms within history in prophetic imagination. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, I'm very sympathetic to the view that says now he's talking about the second coming. That's the view of R.T. France. That's the view of Tim Mackey at Bible Project. That's the view of many people that I respect, and I would commend them to you. That's not my view. <laughs> I, I think he's still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the context of the whole question. That day or hour, meaning when it finally comes to an end and the temple falls, he says no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And you say, how, how can you say that? Did, doesn't Jesus know exactly when? Didn't he just predict it? No, he predicted it within a generation. And then he says... Just pray that it's not on the Sabbath or it's not in winter. Does that sound like someone who knows the day and the hour? If he knew the day of the fall of Jerusalem, you wouldn't have to pray to God that it wouldn't be on a Sabbath. If he knew the, the hour of the fall of Jerusalem, you wouldn't have to pray that it didn't happen in winter. He's saying, still, I think, my reading, is that no one knows, only the Father. And this is because Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself and he gave up his divine privileges to become the humble position of a slave. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. How so in the days of Noah? He says, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, it's like they didn't know what was coming. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now this is the text that many read in the rapture. And there's one just clear misreading. Whatever you say about the rapture, it's not good to be taken in this context. You see that he says it will be like two women or two men. It will be like the days of Noah when they were taken away. Who was taken away in the days of Noah? Was it Noah and his family who were taken away to salvation? He says, no, this is a way of talking about destruction. 
This is, again, precisely what the Romans did as they came into Jerusalem, into its city. Many they would take away to go be gladiators in the Colosseum. Many they would take away to go be slaves. Many they would take away to their deaths. It seemed arbitrary and random the way that Rome would issue out their judgments. Finally, Jesus says, therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. He would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. Okay, thank you guys. We did it. We went through what I think is the most difficult text in all of the four Gospels. And I gave you a really controversial reading that some of you are like, yeah, that's fine. It's, some of you are like, I'm really upset because I didn't think you did my view justice. I'm sorry about that. But can we just unify around Jesus for a moment? The, the Advent season is about getting ready because he really is coming. And as we look out at that great peak, whatever peak you think Jesus is describing in Matthew 24, it's going to sound a lot like that. God writes the story of the world in rhyme. And he says we have to wake up. We have to keep watch. He says he's going to come on a day, and you're just going to be caught off guard. Life will just go on and on and on in the world around us. Eating and drinking, marriage, babies, birthdays, it's just... And then one day, it's all going to happen. And you're going to act surprised, but he says, I told you beforehand, I'm coming. The Advent season is filled with reminders that he's coming. Unfortunately, they're all about Santa Claus. It's like, you better watch out. <laughs> you better not cry. Santa Claus is coming to town. So somehow... <laughs> With the elf on the shelf and like the, the theme of the year of getting ready for Santa, we have to be able to move in to waking up and keeping watch for something that's actually coming. And there's, I think for parents, there's some, there's some way that you need to take a step from the Christmas season into the Advent season here. Where you can use these as cues and clues to talk about the coming of Jesus. But he really is coming. And he really is coming to judge. He really does see you. He really is returning. And so may Oikos Church in this Advent season wake up and keep watch. But mostly I want to unify around what Jesus calls one greater than the temple. One greater than the temple. He says, one greater than the temple is here. This is how he talks about himself. One greater than the temple is here. As he's on trial, he says, I'm going to destroy this temple, but I'll rebuild it in three days. And they think, this guy's blasphemy. He's claiming to be the son of man coming on the clouds. We've heard enough. This is blasphemy. He talked about destroying the temple. Even his friend Stephen. You remember Stephen, the, the first martyr in the book of Acts? Why is he murdered? He's murdered because he says, according to them, Jesus of Nazareth said he's going to come and destroy the temple. But in these claims of Jesus destroying the temple, we actually see that he's the true prophet. 
couple of weeks ago, I was sitting with a young man, young woman from our church, and they were asking me some really great questions about mostly the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. How can you know Christianity is true? Really good questions. It was a great conversation. But here's the thing about Christianity when it comes to defending our faith. Christianity is not at its root a religion of ideas. We have some ideas, like love your neighbor. That's, that's a Jesus idea. That's a really good one. But at its root, Christianity is not a, a religion of ideas. It's a religion of facts. Something happened. Either it happened or it didn't. The resurrection of Jesus is one of these facts. Either Jesus is raised from the dead and he is who he says he is, or the Apostle Paul himself says this, we're still in our sins. If Jesus isn't raised, he says, we're of all people most to be pitied. We're just fools. He says, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If Jesus isn't raised, it's all, it's all fake. But here in Matthew 24, we see a different kind of historical argument. It's about the fall of the temple. You remember how Jesus sometimes argues. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Which is easier to just use your words or to actually do the thing? We have one of those arguments here in Matthew 24. Which is easier to say? I'm the new temple. One greater than the temple is here. Or to look at the city of Jerusalem and say, I'm returning. And when you see this city fall, you will know for certain that I am reigning at the right hand of God. He called a shot. The whole reputation of Jesus depends on him telling the truth, not just about the resurrection, but about his return to destroy the city. He says all of these things are going to happen within a generation. And then his friends wrote it down. How embarrassing. What if he was wrong? What if he's wrong? None of us would be following him if he was wrong. But they wrote it down, and they recorded it in books like Matthew and Mark and Luke. They all have this story. And they all have it even though it hasn't been done yet. Do you see that he vindicates himself as the true prophet, the one who can actually say what's coming in the future? He called his shot, and it happened. He's the true prophet. Judaism looks at Jesus and said he is a blaspheming false prophet who claimed to be the son of man, sitting at the right hand of God, and claimed to destroy the temple. Let's kill him and execute him. But this chapter vindicates Jesus. And he is vindicated, and he says, when you see this city fall, you'll know that I'm telling the truth. The books of Islam, they say that Jesus was actually a great prophet, unlike the testimony of Judaism. He's a great prophet, but before he died, he was assumed into heaven. Of course, this isn't true either. The people who were there wrote down that he was indeed crucified, that he went down into the grave, and that he went from the grave and he he ascended to the right hand of God. And Jesus is saying, I am the true prophet. Christianity isn't just a, a game of ideas that we like these things and we sing these songs because they're beautiful. But this is true. But he's not just the true prophet, he's the true priest. 
The true prophet brings the truth. The true priest brings access. In the Old Testament, if you wanted a relationship with the Creator God, there was one building for one people that you could go to. It was the temple in, in Judea, in Jerusalem. If you want access to God, there's one place to go to for atonement. The animals that are slaughtered every day and then every year. But only for one people. Only one people can worship God, can have access to God, can be made right with God. And Jesus says, not anymore. I'm the true priest because I'm one greater than the temple is here. I'm the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. I am the temple to end all temples. And now I will gather my people from the four corners of this world and I will build a multi-ethnic family. But how? In the Garden of Eden, do you remember, access to God. And then they're banished because of their sin. And at the, at the gate of the garden, there's this flaming sword that comes. And the flaming sword represents the, the justice of God. It's, it's this protection to not let people back in. Sinners can't come anymore. These cherubim, they're then memorialized in the temple itself, on the curtains that are keeping people out, on their wings as it's outstretched over the presence of God. How do we get everyone back in? See, Jesus isn't just the true prophet and the true priest. In this chapter, Definitively, he is saying that I am the true king. But how did he become the king? Every person who approaches the presence of God is struck down by that flaming sword. And Jesus is describing, he says, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many of us think, Jesus, don't say things like that. You're a nice guy after all. Weeping and gnashing of teeth? But Jesus is describing his own judgment as much as he is anything else. As he put the cross on his back, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth at him. And as he went up on the cross as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the, the temple to end all temples, he was struck down by the flaming sword of God's justice. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, down to death, even death on a cross? Cursed is everyone who dies on the tree? For our sake, he was cursed. The one who knew no sin became sin. But Jesus says that because I have defeated death, and because I have endured the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and because I went under the blade of that flaming sword of God's justice. You have a way, you have a way to access the Father. You notice, this is the gospel. We, we, we recite it, we sing it, we remember it over and over and over. Jesus is saying, I'm the true king. And you thought justice on Jerusalem was severe? That's just a foothill. Keep watch. I'm coming back, and the glory of the Lord 
will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The justice that we long for, he's bringing it full. He is the king who sits at the right hand of God. He, he says, the sign is here. It's guaranteed. He is in heaven. And from there, he will return to judge the living and the dead. We say, Lord, come quickly. Jesus is the true prophet, the one who brings us the truth. He is the true priest, the one who brings us access to God. And he is the true king who brings justice on evil and does it in a way that gives us mercy. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Would you stand and let me pray for you? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Would you ransom us and rescue us? Lord, would you send us out into the world? To those sinners in need of salvation today, who have forgotten and have fallen asleep, who don't know, Lord, would you give us the words to announce to the ends of the earth that you are returning, that you are the one who has truth, that you are the one who has access, that you are the one who has justice. Lord, we long for these things. Fill our hearts with them in Jesus Christ. Amen.